morning. Good to be with you this morning. Let's begin uh, with our time together with a reading from God's Word. I'm going to read an extended portion of Scripture. It's the story of the woman at the well. Um, the Lord gives us narratives. The Lord gives us stories, stories about people. Maybe that's why People Magazine is so popular at the supermarket. <laughs> he, he didn't give us a, a, a book this thick of systematic theology. He tells us, I want to tell you a story about a man named Adam. I want to tell you about a woman named Eve. Here's a story about a woman that we don't even know her name, but it's about people. And so um, it's a narrative. It's a story. So I'm just going to read um, John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26 from John's gospel. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink of water from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. How do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him or her will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, but you said it's quite true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, he who speaks to you, I am. Our gracious God and Father, we praise you and thank you that you have not left us in the desert to wander alone. That you provide water, even water from a rock, and that rock is your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Feed us, O oh Lord, I pray this morning from your word, the manna of life. Um, quench our thirst, I pray, Lord, for, through your Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts by faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with one another that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. They're self-supporting through our own contributions. 
AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor imposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. This is the preamble from AA. This is why they exist. It's a simple statement. I like it. It's just like, oh, we're just trying to get sober. We're just trying to stay away from one drink one day at a time, and we're trying to help other people who have a problem with alcohol to do the same. We all just want to help. So um, the way they do that, the, the way they ex share their experience, strength, and hope with one, one another is they tell a story. They tell their story about how they came to realize that uh, they had a problem with alcohol because they tell you it's a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. Like, oh, no, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't have a problem. I, I just spend money wildly, or my wife is cranky, so naturally that's why she yells at me all the time. And, um, but they tell you there's two basic key building blocks to uh, achieving sobriety. The first one is listen. They say, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. You know, listen, pay attention. And the second thing is you identify with the speakers. They say, we identify, we don't compare. And that's the idea that you listen to people's stories and, and you look for similarities because if it's a disease that tells you you don't have a disease, you, you're convinced. You know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, I don't belong here. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, maybe I drink, but I'm not an alcoholic. Just, they say, shut up and listen. Take the cotton out of your ears. Listen and identify. You know, if you say, I've never been to detox or I've never been arrested, you're comparing. But listen to the thoughts, the feelings, the predicaments, the problems that the speaker is speaking. And if this person has a problem with alcohol and you identify with his thoughts, his feelings, or her thoughts and feelings, well, maybe you too have a problem with alcohol. And so that's the purpose that you identify. You, you listen and you identify, you don't compare. So in just a second, we'll, we'll, we'll examine that woman at the well, which I just read about, and we'll see she's from a distant culture, a different land, um, different religion, whole wildly different social setting. And um, if we just look at that and like, you know, oh, five, you had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband, it's like six. It's like, if you, if you engage on that level, you're comparing and you're not identifying. Um, and so we'll see more about that in a second. So the purpose here this morning is uh, we want us to examine the woman at the well and identify with what she's going through, what, what in her life resonates with what you experience in your life. Um, and we want to, that's a good way to do scripture, uh, Bible study anyway, you know. You want to place yourself in the text, in the story. What's going on here? I want to understand, and uh, particularly for me, uh, as, a, as a pastor, as a preacher, when I hear Jesus um, shredding the Pharisees, I'm like, I better pay attention. They're religious leaders. I'm a religious leader. They were conservative religious leaders of their day. I'm part of the re religious conservative of my day, and I want to pay attention that I don't do what they do. I listen, and so we, that's what we want to do. We want to uh, <clears throat> identify and not compare, put ourselves in the story, allow it to speak to us personally, that we might apply it to our lives. And then a second aim, an important one, is that we want to be able to identify with this woman, and we want to identify the thirsts that I have, that you have. Um, and secondly, how we go about quenching those thirsts. And so that said, let's jump into the text. John chapter 4. Where do I put? There we go. Okay. First of all, we're we'll seeing these opening verses, 9 to 15, that Jesus deals with a thirsty soul. She comes to draw water. The woman comes to draw water. It's around 
the uh, sixth hour, 12 noon. Not a time when most women are going to draw water. It's the hottest part of the day. Um, and um, it has been suspected for years that that is probably deliberate and intentional on her part. She doesn't want to meet other women at the well and be the object of scorn, derision, gossip, because, possibly because of the fact that she's had five husbands and the guy that she currently has is not her husband. She goes at the hottest part of the day. She's a Samaritan, an unloved, marginalized people group. Um, the Jews call them dogs. You know the story as well. Um, it, it says in the text, Jesus, and I remember the King James from when I was a baby believer. Um, Jesus must needs go through Samaria. In the ESV, it says he had to go. He had an appointment with this woman, a, mar a woman from a marginalized people group. And her lifestyle made her more marginalized. And it's like Jesus says, yeah, I wanna, that, that's the one I want to talk to. That's the one I want to meet. And so as he had to go. And he sits down and he asks her for a drink. And she's like, what? what? Why are you even talking to me? You know, this is breaking social custom. Um, for men to speak to women like, you know, just to, at all. Jews have no um, dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus is like, no, I need to have dealings with this woman. He didn't allow social customs to stop him from doing, to accomplishing a greater spiritual good. She's independent, she's a little standoffish, she's a little defensive. He asks her for a drink, and then she says, you know, you don't even have anything to draw with. You don't have a cup, you don't have a small bucket. Uh, surely you don't think we're going to be sharing drinking utensils. I mean, come on. Talking to you is one thing, but it's like we're going to start, you know, how are you going to get this drink? Uh, and then she says, and he says, if you knew who's talking to you and what he has to offer, you'd be asking him for spiritual water. And so she's thinking about, you know, living water from like a deep running well that goes wells of water ever springing. Um, and so she's independent, a little standoffish, a little defensive perhaps. Um, and when he speaks about living water, she's like Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's like, how can a man grow, enter his mother's womb a second time and be born again? Um, here's like living water. How are you going to get this living water? You don't even have a bucket or a pail. He's like, doll, <laughs> I'm not talking about literal water. I'm talking about a thirst within. Um, and so um, he speaks to her, and she slowly gets the idea. And um, if, as we read um, 4, 13, and 14, one more time, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him it will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him, or in her in this case, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She said, sir, I want that water. Maybe She may not understand everything entirely, but I know when I first got saved, I didn't know Jack, you know? I didn't know any, I, I was actually, anyway, I was saved at a young age and later came back again um, not knowing that I was originally saved as a child. Um, and so there's so much I didn't know. Um, but she said, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's interested. She wants what he's offering, even though she may not fully understand, but she, she, she wants a change. There's the idea that I don't want to keep doing this. I'm tired of the same old, same old. I identified with that before I came to faith. It's like, I was tired of the merry-go-round, the, 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 the I was a hamster on a wheel, 
same. Here we go again. It's so boring, but you keep doing the same old stupid thing because you don't know what else to do. Identify with that before you came to faith. It's like, what prompted you? Why did you say yes to Jesus? You, probably, you can probably identify with this woman that you didn't fully grasp everything that there was to grasp. Um, but nevertheless, it's not a theology test that you have to pass. He's offering you free life. And it's like, if you want it, he's there to give it. And um, she says, um, you know, she, sir, I want this water. And again, can, can we identify with that? Um, you know, just, I'm tired. I'm tired of the same old, same old. And maybe, as we'll see in just a little bit, even now, as believers, we might say, I need, I need, I need a fresh drink. I need a fresh cup of God's grace uh, this morning. So he deals with a thirsty soul, and she says, uh, yes, sir, give me, <laughs> I, I want this water. Then Jesus, whoa, baby, um, you got to love him. All of a sudden, he says, sure, you want, oh, oh yeah, plenty. I'm offering water. Okay. Go call your husband. It's like, I'm sorry, what did you just say? My husband. You know, we're having this lovely conversation on a superficial level. We're talking about the water and, you know, metaphorical and a little poetry perhaps. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I want to get in on this. And he's like, go get your husband. Because Jesus deals not just with thirsty souls, but he deals with sinful souls. And in order to quench her thirst, you're going to have to deal with the sin below the surface. We're going to have to deal with the real problem. And uh, he's the great physician. He treats the disease, not the symptoms. She's thirsty. I was thirsty before I came to faith, and sometimes to this day we, we, we have thirsts. Um, and so um, we're going to have to talk about sin. Um, when he says this, she feels trapped and threatened. Um, she, she wants to make personal changes, it seems. She's, she's open to this idea of water, but he, it's getting too personal, too quickly. She backs off, and she starts to deflect. And it's like, well, you Jews say this on this mountain and that mountain, and it's like, our father Abraham, Jacob said that, you know, this mountain is like, and he's like, sweetie, please stop. <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about this mountain, that mountain, not in Jerusalem, not here. It's like, you don't know, you know, salvation is from the Jews. I'll get all that straight, but... Um, what, what happens is she's trying to hide behind this theological smoke screen. Let's talk about comparative religion rather than talk about my personal life because it's getting you're cutting a little too close to the bone. Um, but God is the Jesus is the great physician, and here's an an interesting term. He doesn't offer us moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It was a, that's a term that came out. I think it was in the early two thousands. A guy wrote a book. He was examining high school students and and what they're all about. And he says, basically, American Christian, and he said it with the kids, but later on, everybody said, that's not just teenagers. That might be a pretty good way of looking at the American church. We're looking for moralism, therapy, therapy and, and deism. Moralism is like, just clean up your act. You know, get rid of the big sins. No. Uh, I got some experience with AA. AA can, does, does some wild behavior modification. I've seen people coming in the front door the first time, and they're a mess. This is back in the 70s. You see, women in particular, would see, you'd see a greater change in them in the physical and the outside, you know, first. All of a sudden, they get their hair done. 
<laughs> this is the seventies. Remember the blue hair from the seventies? <laughs> they would get the hair done. It's like it, there was a blue streak kind of thing that they would do. <laughs> it's like, but they looked good in the seventies. Like, yeah. Um, but you'd see a real change. And when people came to like the first anniversary, it was like, wow. But that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's behavior modification. That's the common grace of God. So moralism, yeah, yeah, okay, I don't drink anymore. Good. I got money in my pocket. Awesome. Great to hear that. But that's not sanctification. And so God's not, in, not he's not dispensing moralistic bromides. Therapy, so many people need therapy. I got plenty of it myself. We might, there's people that need it in, in these rooms. Uh, and it can benefit you. It's not a bad thing. But God's not looking for, you know, just to, uh, he's not Sigmund Freud. He's not, he's not offering simply psychological benefit. If you can get that help, if you need that help, that's, that's not a bad thing to do. But his goal is not moralistic therapy. And deism is the idea that, yeah, I believe in God. But he's not a God who's actively involved in the everyday affairs of human life. As I was driving here this morning, beautiful Sunday no traffic, love that. Um, and I'm seeing the birds of prey flying high in the sky. And it's just uh, blue, blue, blue sky, white billowy clouds. And it just occurred to me, even God is feeding the birds of the air. It's like he's that involved. And I'm just thinking like, you know, so the bir- here we are in Bergen County, right? Is it Bergen County? Don't make sense, okay. I moved to Jersey. I'm still ten or twelve years ago. I'm still learning, um, but so God is about the business of feeding the birds of the air, and it's like, I mean, just in this, so in this county alone. Well, what about Bergen? What about the, what Brooklyn? What, what what else is he doing? It's like it's a man, but that's the God we serve. He he's not he's not a deistic God. He's he's providential. He's sovereign. He's involved in the everyday. So it's like this woman uh, or you and I might be thinking about we need a moralistic therapeutic God, but he's like, no, no, no. We're going to have to deal with sin. And if we deal with sin, we'll get you on the road to recovery, real recovery. So Jesus deals with a thirsty soul. Jesus deals with a sinful soul. But then he finally deals with a, with a, thirsty, uh, a seeking soul where he says, the one who speaks, I am. There's a big talk about John and his seven I am's. I don't think there's just seven. There's probably more. And this is one of them. The way it's arranged in the original, it's like literally what he's saying, the one who speaks to you, I am. Like, you want a Messiah? Honey, honey, I'm it. I am the Messiah. So he wants to, he wants to set her free and us from law and religion. Rules and regulations. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not rigid. It's not based on the law of Moses. It fulfills the law of Moses. Not geography. You want to talk about geography? Okay, we'll talk about geography. We're not going to talk about Mount Gerizim. We're not going to talk about Jerusalem. We're going to talk about the geography of your head and your heart. Let's see what's going on. Is the standard, the flag of the Lord Jesus and his kingdom implanted in your brain and in your heart, like that famous picture of those Marines and Iwo Jima. Like, we fought, and now we possess this territory. Victory. We're hanging the flag of, you know, old glory. This is, we got it. We fought for it. It was blood spilled, but we won. That's the kind of geography that the Lord Jesus wants to control. Your head, your heart. He's not selling religiosity. It's a personal relationship. This is not new. I'm reviewing. 
not rules and regulations. Worship, worship is from the heart. And she says, I know that in the future, when Messiah comes, he's like basically saying what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to believe. Are you ready to believe? And so here's a summary of uh, what we've been talking about from the prophet Jeremiah, no less. My people have committed two sins, not one but two. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. He says, my people. Old Testament verse from the prophet Jeremiah. So in other words, I'm not talking about the Philistines. I'm not talking about the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Canaanites. I'm talking about my people, Israel, the ones who are named by my name. As we apply this to ourselves, he's talking about us. I don't know about you. You want to identify with the speaker and not compare, as they say in the club? Every day I wake up with a thirst. And it's, I, it's incumbent upon me to decide how am I going to irrigate my dry and weary heart. What am I going to do? How am I going to play this one? My people, not, not, not the Canaanites, my people who name my name, the ones who call themselves Christians, have committed not one but two sins. Well, what are the two sins? The first one is they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. The spring of living water is that it's, it's, it's a, a stream that flows under the ground, deep under the ground. If you, if you, I, I, if you own property on a spring, you can't build there because sooner or later it's going to creep up. It's, it doesn't go away. It keeps springing. It doesn't stop. And so we reject the Lord God who is a spring of ever-living, ever-flowing, never-stopping water. And then we dig out cisterns. Cisterns are designed to hold water, but they have, they're broken. So it doesn't work. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. You go... Wait, if I think about that for a minute, it's like, that's really stupid. <laughs> You're reject, rejecting an ever-ending, never-stopping supply of water, and I'm going to make myself a little cup with holes in it, and it's not going to, you know, so if you burn water through it, it falls out the bottom, but some, some droplets might arrive, uh, remain on the inside of the cup, and you can run our tongues around them. It's like, that doesn't work. It's stupid. That's a pretty good picture of sin. We reject him, the fountain of living waters, and we, we, we have our own ways of mechanisms or strategies that we devise in order to quench our own thirsts, our own needs. And the price we pay for those sinful desires is, is our own hunger. We sabotage our own fulfillment. We undermine our own hopes by digging cisterns, and the result is the th thirst, need, Emptiness, it's folly, it's futility, sorry, can I go back? Folly, futility, and the result is famine and thirst. This is a picture of, do you identify with this? Because this is a picture of us. He said, my people, this this woman, and Jesus is like, I gotta, I gotta go. And John deliberately includes this here in his gospel that we might know it. The carving of broken cisterns is done by, pre, by, by my people. We, those who follow Christ, devise, me, devise methods to satisfy our own thirst and to fulfill our own desires. When I think about this, I can't help but think of the words of Paul Simon. I don't know a soul that's not been battered. I don't have a friend who feels at ease. 
I don't know a dream that's not been shattered or driven to its knees. Um, we want to, again, identify with the words of the poet. Um, life will kick you in the teeth if it doesn't kick you in the gut. This, this is not <laughs> a romp in the park. This is not a Sunday school picnic. Life will get you down, and it's like we have thirsts, we have desires. Um, and here's just a couple that we can see. If um, What thirst desires do you wrestle with? Here's a sampling, you know, just to offer you an opportunity to identify it. You know, we, we, we need acceptance. Intimacy, love, respect, recognition, success, material comforts, achievements. This is just some of the ways that we, we, we seek. And then as um, the next one is like, well, what do we do? What broken cisterns do we carve to satisfy our thirsts? Do you know what they are? You got, it's helpful to know what they are and why. Um, wh wh why and how you seek to satisfy those needs that we all have. Um, and as Christians, we still do it. Um, we get a little bit more clever at disguising them, but we do it, like Jeremiah says. And that, that theme about, you know, strategies and mechanisms and broken cisterns, it's, um, it, it's repeated not just in John 4 or in Jeremiah. Um, and the uh, invitation is obvious several times. It's like, come to the waters. Why do you spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? Why, why do you spend on that which is not bread? John wants us to see this. John, um, amazing man. They think John was the youngest of the apostles. They say he might have been 17 on the night of the Last Supper. They reclined the table. I think they reclined on the left elbow and they would eat with their right hand because the left hand was used for other things. So there's the recline. There's no chairs. It's a low table like you might see in some Japanese restaurants. And so they'll recline, the feet spread out this way. And John comes here and he puts his head on Jesus' chest. This was the disciple that Jesus loved. And John loved them right back. And we see they call him the apostle of love. And I look at what he wrote and why he wrote it. And I think it's his love letter. John, so, John rested his head on Jesus' chest on the Last Supper, but John is the only gospel that doesn't record the Last Supper. And you go, why wasn't that special? It didn't mean anything to him? My personal take, I don't want to start a new church over it. I'm not a published author. But I think John chapter 6 is John's take. where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me will never thirst. I think the broken bread on the cross and the wine at that table, he's saying wine gives you joy and satisfies you. He says, I'm the bread of life. I gotta, I gotta, I'm amused, again, the way, Jesus, the way John rendered Jesus' words. He goes, don't tell me. I don't want to hear that you're telling me Moses gave you manna in the wilderness. Moses didn't give you manna in the wilderness. My father gave you manna in the wilderness, and I'm the manna. I'm the bread of life. I'm what you're seeking. I'm what you need. I 
There's a little poem that I wrote with John Calvin. He provided the theology. I provided the rhyme. The Gospels were penned to show forth the Son. And in fact, they accomplished that goal. The first three exhibit his body, but John shows us his soul. John's Gospel is especially unique. It's, uh, if it's waters, it's so shallow that a baby can play in it unattended with no fear. And so deep is his theology that an elephant could drown in it. That's John. It's so simple and yet so uniquely profound. John wrote his gospel that we may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the bread of life, the fount of everlasting water, and that by putting our faith in him, our thirst can be quenched, but only in him. John wrote the words of Jesus, and again, he said, he chose this stuff. He said, if I wrote down all the things that Jesus did, it would fill the Library of Congress. You have to know the original Aramaic to get that. But. <laughs> he said, but I've written these things down. He selected his material carefully, providentially, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we see his love for his Savior. And he records Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman, the only gospel that records this. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John chapter 7, he writes, on the last day of the, on the, last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And in the book of Revelation, where it's all wrapped up, where we have the culmination and where there's no more thirsting and no more longings, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David. I'm the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you. He said, come, which is, requires faith. It's not just showing up at church, it's but we could come to you. John also said religious people would search the scriptures because they think that they provide life, but they don't provide water for the thirsty. They only, it's a sign pointing to Jesus. And so we come to you, I come to you now in prayer. I thank you, Lord, for this testimony of my sister. And we just sang my testimony and hers earlier when we said, all my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring, but I was never satisfied until I bowed the knee. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that you would help me and help my brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters seated here in your presence, that you would help us to identify our broken systems, what, we, what methods we devise that we might try to satisfy our thirst apart from you as we relinquish them and we might be like that woman who left her water pot 
and ran into town and said, I got to tell you somebody who told me everything about me that I ever needed to know and everything about salvation that I needed. Help us, O Lord, to identify our thirsts and our broken cisterns. We ask this in Jesus' name.